listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends. I'm Carrie, and I bring the practical buzzkill vibe to this partnership. And I'm Amy. I tend to be upbeat and social. Sometimes I'm overly enthusiastic, but I'm not right at this minute because we had a technology glitch (laughs) and we had to start all over again, but that's okay. Each week we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. And we don't only talk about what we're reading, but also book adjacent topics such as... Stuff we've had to Google while reading. New titles on our TBR list. Film adaptations that we've seen. And other bookish news. At the end of the show, you'll have new books to put on your nightstand and hopefully a laugh or two along the way. So the first Saturday of May is always when the Kentucky Derby is run. And we are in Louisville, Kentucky, the home of the Kentucky Derby. And most people outside of Kentucky don't realize what a big deal the Kentucky Derby is to the state of Kentucky, mainly Louisville, Lexington area. But yeah, it's a, it's a big honking deal. Yeah. Lots of tourism. For two weeks, it starts with a, there's a kickoff thunder over Louisville big fireworks and air show and and then school is canceled yeah school is canceled on oaks day the day before derby and there's the steamboat race and the parade and all sorts of you know different events around the city so we thought that this week it might be fun for us to tell you about some of our favorite books that epitomize kentucky and the kentucky derby to us. Now, they may not be by Kentucky writers. They may not even be set in Kentucky. They remind us in some way or make us think about Kentucky. Right. Yeah. So there might be horses. There might be bourbon. There might be some Appalachia stuff in there. There might be... Who knows? Who knows? You got to tune in and see. That's right. Yeah. Keep listening. But first, Carrie... I have to ask you, you know, last week I said we needed to start. What boring thing did Carrie do this week? Last week you were looking at your toes. What do you have for me this week? Uh, Well, no toe gazing this week. I did decide last night I had planned to go do this, I should say, cultural activity last night. But I was tired and it was going to rain and it started at 630, which is not like... A great time. Seven is really better. 7.30 is preferable. Anyway, all signs did not point in the direction of me going and doing this activity. So I didn't. I stayed home. And I think the key to you doing social things is you were doing a social thing with yourself or with your husband. And when you didn't feel like going, you just didn't go. Yeah. But don't you think that had you had a plan to go with somebody else... I would have gone, probably. You would have gone, yeah. I I mean, I did watch something with my husband. What did you watch? We watched Baby J. Uh It's uh, John Mulaney's most recent stand-up routine. That one is all about his drug habit and the intervention and his stay in rehab. And it was was pretty good. I had seen some write-ups about it, so I was curious. And I've watched some of his other stand-up routines. You know, (laughs) I think he's... uh, well, probably like a lot of people. Yeah, everybody has kind of a mean streak. Yeah. And I think that he kind of gave off, you know, the vibe that he was Mr. Nice Guy. And the reality is... He has a mean streak? He is. You know, like a lot of people. Everybody has the capacity for a mean streak, so... Everybody has flaws, right? Right. Right. And maybe some people's flaws are more harmful to themselves and others. Right. Yeah. Than other people. There's one part he says something about likability. I think of this way: likability is a jail. Oh, and which which I thought you know that's kind of true. If like your whole shtick is that you're a likable, you know, kind of, then you can never mess. You up. can never mess up, and that puts I think a lot of undue pressure on somebody in the public eye or even in the private eye. Yeah. So anyway, I, guess, I, yeah, I enjoyed that's, it. We thought that's it was insightful. Good. Yeah. You get the sense that he's still kind of working through some stuff. So so he had, like, friends who staged an intervention, and he's still kind of mad about it. Like, he's he's grateful they did it, but he's also kind of mad about it, which tells me that he's still 
processing. Yeah. You know, hopefully he's going through some good therapy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that he's probably going to need that for a good long time. But Mm -hmm. well, don't they say that a lot of comedy is based in pain? Like I have heard some comedians say, you know, a lot of comedy is based in things that make you uncomfortable Mm. or painful. Mm. Well, Mm. I think a lot of art in general is, you know, you think about writers and musicians and, I mean, to write about happy, fun stuff, well, you don't need to write about happy, fun stuff because there's no inherent conflict in stuff that makes you happy. Yeah. You know, so I think that's kind of the nature of of art. So, well, I have a bookish problem that I need to. Oh, yeah. I need to vent about. Actually, I may already know about it, but tell listeners about your bookish problem. I started a book uh, several weeks ago and I was sure that I was going to like it. I was really sure. And the first 25%, I was like, yeah, I'm digging this. This is really good, you know? And then I got to about 50%, 50, 60%. I'm like, huh, I'm I'm not enjoying this as much, but maybe it's just like a lull because sometimes the plot has a hard time propelling itself in the middle, you know? Mm -hmm. There's kind of a, gets kind of slow, right? And I thought, okay, I'm going to just, I'm just going to ride this out Mm because it's going to get better. Yep. Surfer girl that you are. Yep. Surfer girl that I am. And then I got to 80% and I flipping hated this book. (laughs) I didn't, uh, which you texted me and and talked on the phone with me about. Yeah. This hardly ever happens to me because generally I can tell if I'm going to like a book by, you know, 20, 25% of the way through. And I don't have a problem with DNFing a book that I don't like early on. Mm-hmm. And then I just won't read it, right? And so th- that's why, like on my Goodreads, there's hardly any books that I give below a three star because I just don't, if I don't like them, I just don't read them. Mm-hmm. I got to 80% and wanted to DNF this thing, but there was a little bit of a mystery involved. So I wanted to see what happened. But I was just mad. I was mad that I was 80%. I'd spent 80% of the book and I just, did not like it. It was mainly that the the main character I found super annoying by the end. Like she started out okay. Mm-hmm. Then by the end, I couldn't flip and stand her. <laughs> and, you know, I don't have to, not all the characters have to be likable, but right. like she was annoying in a, an especially annoying way. <laughs> you know, she wasn't just like garden variety annoying. Okay, She was super annoying and I kind of hated her by the end. But I was telling my husband about this because like, mm-hmm. I, I texted you I was telling him about it. I mean, when I say I was mad, I was like, I like needed to vent to people about it. And my husband said, you should have just DNF'd it. And I'm like, but I was already 80% of the way through. He said, well, I just DNF'd a book. I'd read 600 pages of it. And it's it's a sci-fi fantasy book. And those books a lot of times are long. And I said, well, how much more of it did you have? He said about two to 300 more pages. I liked the first 600. And then it started going <laughs> a different direction I didn't like. So I just quit. But... That would be hard for me. So I guess I'm glad I finished it. I guess I'm not necessarily mad that I read it because I've. Uh, it's a book I had been wanting to read. And I think if I hadn't read it, I would have always been like, oh, I really want to read that book. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Or do you think you would have been like, I wonder how it ends? Like if you had stopped at 80% of the way done, you would, every time you saw it, you'd be like, Yes, how I never did that finished end? that. Now, if we were like our friend Anne in book club, she would have just turned to the end and find out how it ended and wouldn't have. Oh, uh, that's probably. Yeah, that she always goes and reads the end. We've got your number, Anne. We know what you're doing. <laughs> she's, she's not embarrassed to say it. I guess the thing is, I can totally appreciate the idea of sunk costs, right? You've already sunk 80%, you know, whatever. You've, you've put that time in. You, so you can't base your decision on how much time you've put in, right? Like, I get that on a theoretical level. But here's the thing. What I think about is, okay, say you have a college degree and you're 80% of the way done and then you decide, you know what, I don't want to major in this anymore. Are you going to totally switch gear or are you just going to finish up what you have? Well, to me, I'm like, you don't spend additional money because who's to say that on that next one, you don't get 80% of the way done through that one and then decide. Anyway, so I know it's a different idea, but I'm just kind of like, if I've gotten 80%, if I put 80% into it, I'm just going to finish it up just so that I can say I did it. Again, I understand sunk costs, but as a book reader, I'm like, hmm, I just sort of have to finish this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's what I did. But I'm, I, and I'm I, not- I aspire to be more like Chris. I know. I'm like, I guess he just, 
He yeah. just didn't want to spend more time on it, yeah. which I I admire. I get it. I just not. I don't think. Good thing I, he doesn't feel that way about your marriage. I well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, I feel like we're fairly happily married. But <laughs> I've put twenty seven years or whatever into this. Okay, I'm not happy anymore. Okay, so I do have a little bit of bookish news. Hit me. Okay, I read this article recently. It was on NPR. And the headline was that women now dominate the book business. Well, it's about time. I know. It, the article is basically about how women up until the 20th century only wrote about 10% of books. And that that number has slowly gone up. And then in, in 1970, things kind of skyrocketed. And now women... Uh, exceed men in all areas of like of book writing of positions in book publishing all of that and so they were sort of looking at why that was i know i know because we got thousands of years worth of to say (laughs) that that yes (laughs) that yes but also for a couple other reasons one more women were going to college Mm. so more women were educated Two, the pill. So now women could control, for the most part, when they wanted to have babies Mm -hmm. and do their child rearing. Three, technology like dishwashers and, you know, other kinds of appliances that made their domestic work a little, these are just theories, domestic work easier. Anyway, I thought it was fascinating. I never really thought about that, but that in that women authors exceed sales for their books as opposed to male authors. So things are looking up, girls. Yep. Now we just got to do it in politics. Yeah. And in the corporate world, it's just keep it going. The funny thing was they did say that it's in as far as like in the arts, that this was an anomaly, that that was still not the case, like in say in movies or, or in, uh, visual art or, you know, in other artistic areas. Hmm. And I'm not really sure why that is. You'd have to maybe do a little more Googling, hmm. Googling interesting. Um, to see that. But I thought that was a little bit interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So way to go. All right, Carrie, what have you been reading? So <laughs> why are you laughing? This is making me nervous. <laughs> All right. So, I saw the title of this book, and I was like, oh, this sounds interesting. I'm really bad about reading subtitles. <laughs> All right, so this is an audiobook. It's called American Murderer. Doesn't that sound interesting? Is it, is it true crime? <laughs> no. No. Okay. Uh, okay, American Murderer, colon, The Parasite That Haunted the South oh by Gail Jarrow. Okay. So is this another one of your your because you like to read books about <laughs> public health? Yes, public health. Is yes. this a public health? This thing? is okay. Now, what drew me to this book is that it's well, I did like the title "American Murder," but I also like the fact that it is a short audiobook. It's like three hours. This book is geared like towards middle grade teen and YA, but anybody can read it. Okay, all right. So this is a story of Nicator Americanus otherwise known as the New World Hookworm. And Nicator Americanus, the actual translation is American Murderer. So that's where the title comes from. Okay. It is a very titillating title, but the hookworm thing, are we going to talk about poop? Do hookworm? I don't think I mentioned poop at all in this. I don't think the word poop is ever used in my discussion of this book. Okay. But this is a parasite that caused a lot of disease in the American South prior to, like, the 1920s. Caused a lot of disease. Hookworms thrive in areas where there's, like, heat, humidity. Okay, so that's why they like the South. The way these worms, their larvae, enter the body through the skin. Typically the bottom of the foot, but potentially through, like, the ankles, you know, or the top part of the foot. And they travel up to the lungs. And when they get to the lungs, then they go up the throat, and then they go down the throat into the small intestine, where they, you know, hook up with other hookworms and mate. 
And I have like an orgy down in there. A little bit, yes, a little bit. Okay, so these what these hookworms do is they suck blood from the human. And so they cause anemia. And in children, it can cause developmental delay. So this was a problem all through the South, predominantly in uh, rural areas. So in cities, they didn't have this problem because they had sewers. But on farms and plantations and sharecropping areas, people didn't have privies. So they would kind of use the bathroom wherever. And so hookworms were everywhere. And so there was a zoologist named Charles Stiles, and he discovered this specific version of the hookworm. And so he, along with uh, John D. Rockefeller, developed a program to fight hookworm infestation in the South. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine how much hookworms affected people. So have you ever heard, like, they would call people dirt eaters? Say this about people, oh, they're a dirt eater? Well, one of the symptoms of hookworm is that you that you have pica. Oh. And so they would call them dirt eaters. Part of the reason that they called, they didn't call them dirt eaters because they were farmers. They called them dirt eaters because one of the symptoms of hookworm infestation is pica. And pica is where you eat things that aren't food. So you might eat dirt, you might eat chalk, you might eat sand, you know, things that non-food items like that. So that's what pike is. You know, my grandmother used to say to me, don't run around without your shoes on or you'll get worms. And I never understood like what she was talking about. Because to me, worms were earthworms, right? Mm -hmm, And I'm like, mm -hmm. how's an earthworm going to get in my foot? Mm -hmm. You know, as a kid, that didn't make any sense. And so this actually is quite illuminating to me about what my grandmother was referring to. The treatment for hookworm was really inexpensive and really easy. And so they essentially, at the early part of the 20th century, there was a public health program where they tried to eradicate hookworms. That's why... You know, over time, local government started putting in septic systems and more sewer systems. Anyway, I have not said poop at all so far. You have not, but you do love a book about a sewer system. I do love a book about a sewer system. Anyway, I think it just astounds me, you know, I think public health gets a bad rap, especially the last couple of years. And I, for one, will pay Metro's sewer district. I will pay them any amount of money so that I don't have sewage in my yard and that I have clean water coming into my house. Any amount of money. It's totally worth it because I have a really tough stomach, but there were times listening to this book, I was like, I'm feeling a little queasy. So this would not don't be the book eat, for me. Don't eat while you're reading this book. But if you have an interest in science, gross stuff, public health, this is, again, it's like a three-hour audiobook. And it's it's really interesting. To, you know, I, I think about even like our grandparents probably and, and people would talk about, oh, they would call it ground itch. So like kids, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be outside. They wouldn't wear shoes. You can't see the hookworm larva. And so tons and tons and tons of people had hookworm infestation and they didn't realize it. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those things now. We, we I mean, I've never heard of that. You know, well, we it's don't kind have of forgotten. To. We don't have to because we have right. But I mean, plumbing. I think it's like one of those forgotten yeah. illnesses that was a big deal then. But like now, because we don't deal with it, we don't yeah remember it. Yeah, uh, wouldn't it sounds interesting, but not the book for me. Yeah. I, I've realized that I do not. You can't read books about worms. I don't like things about worms. Yeah, yeah. Well, I knew. You know, are you just are you just trying to <laughs> torture me <laughs> by talking about no, that book? No. It wasn't like I looked at it and thought, ooh, Amy will be totally grossed out by this book. I think I'll read it. Hmm. Okay. If you talk, say so. talk about, what are you going to talk about? Like puppies and flowers? Is that the book well, you read? Not quite. Okay. Not quite. But I, I am going to talk about a book that I really liked and it has nothing to do with worms. It's <laughs> called Call Me Athena, Girl from Detroit by Colby Cedar Smith. Oh my goodness, this book written in verse, it was just really a delight. It was just really lovely. I'd never heard about it. It came out last year sometime. And the only reason I started listening to it, I was perusing through Libby because all the books that I had looked up, I had waiting lists. And I like wanted something 
right then because I'm impatient. And the cover of this book just really caught my eye. It's like this really pretty blue background. You imagine like the Mediterranean or something. And it's this portrait of this young woman with this really tall, luxurious black hair. It's just kind of a striking cover. And so that's why I decided to start to read it. But this is it's a book written in verse. I guess it would be YA. But I mean, really, anybody could. Mm-hmm could read it. It's got a dual timeline. The first one is the story of Mary, and she's a 60-year-old girl in 1930s Detroit whose parents are immigrants. And at that time, the Ford Motor Company attracted workers from everywhere because of its automobile manufacturing, and it had a very diverse community. And Mary's father's from Greece, her mother's from France, and she is one of six children, and she is a twin. And when we start the story, Mary's father, he runs a little like corner store in Detroit, but things are financially getting really pretty dicey because of the depression. So her father wants her to marry this older Greek man who lives nearby and who is financially stable. But of course, Mary's 16. She doesn't want to marry this, you know, what she perceives as this old gross guy. Now, maybe he's only 30, but to a 16-year-old, that's that's still pretty old, right? She wants to marry for love. And so Mary happens upon some letters in the basement that are between her parents when they met during World War I. And we find out about the war, what their lives were like in their respective countries, and how that influenced their lives as adults. But to me, what it really emphasized was how we have gradually, with each generation, have expanded the freedom of women, because Mary wants to be a businesswoman, while her parents want her to be a wife and a mother. But through the book, we find out about Mary's mother and what her dreams were for herself. I listened to this by audiobook, and I would not have known necessarily that it was written in verse. So if when I say that this is a book in verse, if that scares you, like you're thinking, oh, I don't want to listen to poetry, it doesn't feel like that, except for that the language was so wonderful. The imagery was so wonderful. There are three different narrators in the audiobook, which I appreciated. I always like it when there's multiple narrators. And when I'm talking about the imagery, uh, for an example... When Mary is describing her family, she's one of six children. She has a twin sister. She has three brothers, and her mother is pregnant with the sixth child. But she describes her brothers as the three-headed dog named Cerberus in Greek mythology. And as a mother of boys, I can totally imagine that movement going on everywhere. And that's just a really unique image of what it's like with young boys messing around and what it must feel like to her. So Colby Cedar Smith is a poet by trade and someone talked her into writing a novel by verse. But I like essay collections that are written by poets because a lot of times they are so focused on the right words that maybe someone who normally writes prose, they're used to using all the words in the world that they want to use. Where I feel like poets who then go to prose sometimes are a little bit choosier and and their language is a little bit sparser maybe, but they can capture so much in like what they're saying. Uh, This book is loosely based on her grandmother's story. Growing up in Detroit as a child of immigrants and she went on to be a prominent business owner. So if you like historical fiction, if you like stories about World War I or books written in verse, I highly recommend this book. Okay, so I have a question. You said it was two storylines? Yeah, one set in the 1930s and one set, set in 1917, 1918. Okay, so you have the parents' story and Mary's yes. story. Gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. So Mary's reading the letters that her parents wrote each other during World War gotcha. I. Gotcha. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense? Mm-hmm. So the name of the book, again, is Call Me Athena, A Girl from Detroit by Colby Cedar Smith. And no worms. And there are no worms in this. All right, we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Kentucky Inspiration Books. We'll be right back. All right, we are back, and we're focused this week. Because the Kentucky Derby is coming up in just a couple days, we're talking about books that make us think about Kentucky in some capacity. So 
I was very loosey goosey about this. Amy wanted to keep me. I was trying to contain. Like you were trying to contain it it. about horses. It's just no. Let's be broad. Anything (laughs) that makes us think of Kentucky. So here we go. Here we go. All right. So the first book that I picked is The Bean Trees by Barbara Kingsolver, who grew up in Carlisle, Kentucky. So she was not born in Kentucky, but she grew up in Kentucky. So the novel centers around Taylor Greer. She's a Kentucky girl who has big plans to get the heck out of the state, which isn't uncommon. Um, Her main goals growing up were to not get pregnant and leave. (laughs) Those were her two goals. She's in her car. She heads out west to escape. But on her way to wherever it is she's going to go, she finds a Native American toddler who needs taking care of. Uh, This toddler is so frightened and cowering that Taylor starts to call her Turtle. Taylor and Turtle are fortunate to come into contact with a woman who owns a tire shop that also operates as a safe house for Guatemalan refugees. So, you know, this is the story of Taylor and her, you know, mission to escape and all the people that she comes in contact with and how that experience changes her. I read this book a long time ago. It was the book that kind of introduced me to Barbara Kingsolver. And this book has a sequel called Pigs in Heaven, which I've also read. So have you read any of her other ones? Yeah, I read uh, Poisonwood Bible. And I'm trying to think that might be it. I want to read Demon Copperhead. That's on my list. So, um, well, because I have read a couple of her, I think I read Prodigal Summer, and I read Flight Behavior. Um, both of those are set in Kentucky, I believe, which is why I was curious if you had read more of hers, mm. why you picked Bean Trees. But you I, haven't was, read the I others. think that was her first novel. I, it was her debut novel, yeah. I believe. Yeah. yeah. So that was why uh, I picked it because it was it was the first one. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of I, I have quite a few debuts, actually, that I'm talking about. So anyway, that was that was one of my picks because she's a Kentucky gal. Yeah, I think so. she might live in North Carolina now. But yeah, yeah, she did grow up here. And and like I said, she has at least two other books set in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. I'm going to start with bourbon. Okay. Because you cannot do a Kentucky Derby without – you don't necessarily have to drink it yourself, but everybody around you will mm-hmm. be drinking bourbon. So I'm going to talk about a book called uh, Pappy Land. A Story of Family, Fine Bourbon, and the Things That Last by Wright Thompson. I listened to this on audiobook with my husband. My husband's a big bourbon fan. And, you know, bourbon kind of equals Kentucky. I mean, you can make bourbon outside of Kentucky, but it's pretty much a 90% a Kentucky thing. And if you know anything about American whiskey, you most likely have heard of Pappy Van Winkle, which over the last like quarter century has sort of developed this cult following. In fact, there was a fairly famous case of a heist of a lot of Pappy Van Winkle bourbon. It was stolen by some of its employees and sold thousands and thousands of dollars. And it made getting Pappy Van Winkle bourbon virtually impossible, which I think probably added to some of his mystique. There was a show on Netflix called Heist that was a documentary series And they covered three of the biggest heists in modern American history. And one of the heists that they covered was Pappy Gate or the Pappy Van Winkle heist. Oh, hmm. Cool. Yep. Wright Thompson. He is a staff writer for ESPN, ESPN ESPN.com, and the ESPN magazine. And he's originally from Mississippi. And he followed Julian Van Winkle, who is the grandson of the founder of Pappy Van Winkle Whiskey, And he wrote a book about how he's trying to continue his grandfather's legacy. This is definitely creative nonfiction, though, because Thompson weaves a lot about his own life. And he and his wife struggles with infertility into the story, which I honestly wasn't sure how I felt about. (laughs) Like, to me, it didn't always seamlessly meld together. But I will say that if you're interested in bourbon culture in Kentucky, this book will give it to you in spades. And we definitely learned a lot by listening to it. Uh, So again, the name of that is Pappy Land, A Story of Family, Fine Bourbon, and the Things That Last by Wright Thompson. Cool. What you got? What's the next one? All right. Well, the next one is set in Kentucky, but it's not written by a Kentuckian. 
I read this one a long time ago. It's called The Patron Saint of Liars by Ann Patchett. I think that's her debut, it isn't is it? It is her debut. Okay. It was her debut. And it is the story of a home for young pregnant women in Kentucky. And it's run by nuns. The site used to, at one time, it was uh, where this spring was located that had healing properties. But now it's it's a home for pregnant young women. Rose, the protagonist of the story, comes to the home. She's pregnant, but she's wed, but she doesn't want to be pregnant. And it's the story of how, over the course of the story, in terms of who she meets, the girl she meets, the sisters who surround her in the home, and other people, how she changes over time, right? So kind of a, not a coming of age, but a little bit like a coming into yourself story. So I I wanted to pick that one because that one I have good memories about. I read that one a long time ago. And now Ann Patchett is such a superstar. Yeah. Okay. So the next one I'm going to do is a children's book, like middle grade. It's called Becoming Muhammad Ali by James Patterson and Kwame Alexander. Neither which of these authors are obviously from Kentucky. I mean, I think we all know who James Patterson is. And Kwame Kwame Alexander is a renowned children's author of middle grade and YA books. And a lot of times he writes them in verse. And I can have a confession to make. I've never read a James Patterson book. This is the I don't very think first I have one. Either. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> That's just not my genre. But this is a collaboration between these two authors to write a biographical novel for kids about the childhood of Cassius Clay, who we know as Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and his influence still looms very large over this city. There's the Ali Center here that is a museum about his legacy, but it's also there to advance social justice. He was just very much beloved here. But in this book, which was authorized by his estate, by the way, we get a look at the charismatic kid that he was growing up. And it takes you from, you know, when he was a very young boy up until the time that he was, I think, 18. And he went to the Olympics to represent the United States. They're alternating chapters. Kwame Alexander, who is known for, we talked about writing um, stories in verse, very punchy. It's like really um, alliterative mm-hmm. kind of verse. He is writing as Cassius Clay and it's free verse. And it kind of makes sense because if you think about a lot of the ways that Muhammad Ali would talk in the press, there's a lot of imagery there. If you think about the fly like a butterfly and sting like a bee, you know. And then James Patterson writes as Cassius Clay's best friend, Lucius. So we get two different perspectives about his life. And I really liked it. It was a really interesting book. And I think that, you know, like I said, adults can read this as well as kids. And it was interesting for me, too, because where he grew up in Louisville was just a few streets over from where my father-in-law grew up. And so I recognized a lot of the street names and things that they were talking about. But yeah, if you're going to understand Louisville, uh, knowing a little bit about Muhammad Ali is uh, a good way to go. Very cool. Mm -hmm. And he's buried at Cave Hill Cemetery. Yes, he is. What you got next? All right. So I read this short, it's a sci-fi novella. It's called These Prisoning Hills by Christopher Rowe. And he is an author who lives in Lexington, Kentucky. He's one part of an author marriage. Yeah. He's married to Gwenda Bond. Who she writes rom coms. Rom com, yeah. And she was on the uh, on the show once. Yes. So mm-hmm. his novella is set in Appalachia. And it describes a world that has survived an apocalypse. But this apocalypse wasn't the result of an atomic bomb or a pathogen. It was the result of artificial intelligence gone bad. So there are these small pockets of militants and survivors here and there in the hills, including Marsha. She's a veteran who fought in the war that caused these current conditions this battle with artificial intelligence. And so given her experience with fighting AI, she's called in to help save some soldiers who have disappeared. So this was an, it was an interesting novella because, you know, it was talking about this post-apocalyptic world and artificial intelligence. And it's kind of taking her, she's remembering back, but it's also in the present. So I thought it was pretty interesting. There were some things, you know, with sci-fi, 
sometimes I feel like it's so imaginative. And you've mentioned this, like it's hard for me to imagine what they're talking about. Um, so I had a little bit of that because it was I, the way I pictured it. It was kind of like these huge, they were called Commodores in the story. And I pictured them as like almost these huge transformer type okay. machines. That's how I envisioned them. I don't know if that's the way Christopher Rowe in you know envision them but that's sort of the way i envision them and so one of them it had been dormant and it's sort of come back to life and so everybody's freaking out like what's what's going on does this mean there's a new war so that's kind of the the premise of it but i thought it was interesting that and i sort of love that it was set in appalachia okay all right very good what about you um, I have a, de- a debut novel by a well-known author. I'm going to talk about Clay's Quilt by Silas House. And Silas House is a beloved author here in Kentucky. He was just named the Poet Laureate of the state. Um, he's on the National Book Award Committee to select. He had a book called Lark Ascending that made the New York Times bestselling list. But he's been writing books for a while. And I remember when his very first book, his debut novel came out and It's talking about Appalachia, Eastern Kentucky, and that's not really necessarily around horse country, but it gives you a little bit of a feel for the rest of the state. This novel, Clay's Quilt, is part of a trilogy that was based on his family, and each book is about like a a different member, a different generation of that family. This particular one is about um, a, a young boy who's four, his name's Clay Sizemore, and his mother is killed, and he's left an orphan. And members of the community take care of him and become his family. And there are some very Kentucky things in this book. Quilting. There's a National Quilting Museum here in Kentucky. Fiddling. Bluegrass music is from Kentucky. And just this overwhelming sense of place that um, Silas House injects into all of his uh, novels. I loved all of them in this series, but I think this one was my favorite. And it's also his debut. So... Again, that's Clay's Quilt by Silas House. Very good. All right. So I've got another public health book. (laughs) (laughs) Another public health book. Another public health book. All right. So this book is called Waverly Hills Sanatorium, A History by Lynn Pohl. So this was published, I think it was like in the fall of last year. I bought this book for my parents for Christmas in 2022. Because Waverly Hills is is just kind of known, not just around Louisville. I mean, it's also known there's like people all over the world who have heard of Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Now, they know of it because of different reasons. So Lynn Pohl's book, it's a short history of Waverly Hills Sanatorium, which was in the early 1900s, a center for the treatment of tuberculosis. And uh, apparently, you know, reading her book, I didn't realize how big of a problem tuberculosis was in Kentucky, but it was... a a pretty big problem here in the state. So the site of Waverly Hills was at one time a farm located in southwest Jefferson County, and it had several buildings that were part of its campus, and it offered care to men, women, and children. Um, It closed in the early 1960s, and it became like a nursing home for a short time, and then it was sort of just left to decay. Now, you know, there's an organization that is trying to do, they do tours around um, Halloween. They do haunted houses type things to try to preserve it as best they can. So, and it's now visited by hundreds of people a year. They do history tours. Now, a couple weekends ago, I went with my parents. We did one of these history tours, and they sell this book in their gift shop. And I was uh, pleasantly surprised how close the historical tour talked about some of the things that were in this book. So I was impressed by that. But while we were there, my mom kept bringing up James Markert's A White Wind Blue and telling like other people on the tour, oh, have you read A White Wind Blue? So between the Lynn Pohl book and... A white wind blew. My mom was chatting everybody up about and those white books. wind blue is a is, is a, a fictional fictional right story about uh-huh. Waverly Hills. Lots of people also visit Waverly Hills because of sort of the you know it's the, supposed to be haunted. It's supposed to be haunted. Now I saw no ghosts. I I felt no breezes against my neck that made the hair stand on end or anything like that. So I have been on two ghost tours at Waverly. And I never saw a ghost, but I definitely, it just felt creepy. But now, Were know, these at night? Yes. Both of them were at night. 
And I mean, some people do overnights there. You know, mm-hmm. they spend the whole night inside. I went with my foreign exchange student that we had a few years ago from Norway, Amanda, and she is a a ghost nut. She loves anything haunted. And so when I told her that here in Louisville, there was this haunted place called Waverly Hills Sanatorium. She said, what? Waverly Hills is here? So for her birthday, I took her on a ghost tour there because she was so excited about it. So yes, Waverly Hills, people who are or in the ghost hunting world know about Waverly Hills. I'm going to give you a little bit of a curveball here. This is about horses, but not about Kentucky. But it still made me think of Kentucky, so I'm including it. The name of the book is Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race by Laura Pryor Palmer. This is a memoir of a British woman who, at the age of 19, without much training, was the first female winner of the world's longest, toughest horse race, the the Mongolian Derby. And so... It definitely doesn't have the star power of the Kentucky Derby with its beautiful thoroughbred horses. In the Mongolian Derby, contestants ride wild ponies for a thousand kilometers, or that would be equal to about 621 miles, across the Mongolian grassland. And where the Kentucky Derby is the fastest two minutes in sports, this derby is about endurance. It takes over a week to complete the course. And so this is a part travel memoir because she talks about her experiences with the Mongolian people and traveling across Mongolia. It's, you know, it's a sports story of of endurance. It's also, you know, a memoir of a young woman who is doing something kind of exciting and she's the first. So I found this book highly engaging. I really enjoyed it. And while it's not the Kentucky Derby, it is about riding horses. So I think it counts. It totally counts. Again, the name of that book is Rough Magic, Riding the World's Loneliest Horse Race by Laura Pryor Palmer. All right, my turn. My last book that I'm going to talk about, it is like, it it gives all the derby vibes because it is about a jockey who ends up murdered. So this book is called Blood in the Bluegrass by D.C. Alexander. He was a guest on our show a long time ago, and we actually met him in real life at the Louisville Book Festival last fall. So this features homicide detective Lauren Arno and her partner, and they visit some of the well-known establishments of Louisville as they attempt to discover the culprit. So they go to Wagner's, uh, which is down by Churchill Downs. They go to Churchill Downs in the backside, they even visit some a club, a certain club. Eclectic. <laughs> it's an eclectic uh, schedule that they keep. Anyway, so as a lifelong Louisvillian, I really enjoyed this book. Uh, DC is is a transplant to the area, and I think he sort of fell in love with Louisville too. So it was very cool to read this book and to see places that are familiar uh, mentioned. So it is a horse racing conspiracy and a detective procedural that has some twists and turns. Um, so if you're looking for kind of a fun, derbyish book, that might do the trick for you. And you even said that that special club that's mentioned in Blood in the Bluegrass is also mentioned in A Dark Room in Glitterball City by David Dominic. Right, which is another book that isn't initially on our list, but we probably, if, if we could do six books each. Yeah. And I guess we are doing six books each because we're mentioning it right now. A Dark Room in Glitterball City, Murder, Secrets, and Scandal in the Louisville by David Dominic is a true crime book. And it does something similar, I feel like, as the one from D.C. Alexander. He talks about all kinds of local history, uh, local landmarks, and it's a it's a pretty good true crime story as well. It talks about quirky, the Characters. quirkiness, yeah, the quirkiness of, yes, Louisville. of yeah. Louisville. But he talks about those uh, special clubs, special clubs that yeah. I have never seen nor been invited to, <laughs> and wouldn't go. That's definitely too peopley. <laughs> <laughs> definitely too peopley, and maybe parts of peopley you don't want to people. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right, what's your last book? Well, the last one I'm going to talk about is actually a book I'm in the middle of listening to. So uh, I haven't finished it yet, but I think it's perfect for this list. It's called My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song by Emily Bingham. Um, Emily Bingham is a historian. She's written several books. She is a native Louisvillian, and her family is very prominent in Louisville history. She wrote this book about 
the state song called My Old Kentucky Home. It's also a song that is sung with much gusto right before the running of the Kentucky Derby. And in fact, before I knew anything about this song, I would feel about it when I sang it the same way that I would feel about the American anthem a little bit, like, you know, the sense of pride, except for that. It has very racist lyrics. It was written by Stephen Foster before the Civil War. Now, in my defense, I don't really listen to song lyrics very much. Um, And so I didn't pay too much attention to the lyrics. But this book is about that song, but not just about that song. It's about the way that we sort of tell ourselves nice stories about things in American history that, um, as Emily Bingham would say, is sort of a warped illusion. And so it's sort of a warped illusion that this song is about the you know the good old days and the, you the, know, the slaves were happy that slaves were yeah. happy yeah. exactly mm-hmm. and so it, it is creative nonfiction and that she's looking at her own family's role in race relations you know she re- is kind of looking in her family's closet for some skeletons but I think that uh, if you're interested in race relations social justice even if you're not interested in Kentucky um, you'll find a lot to sink your teeth into with this one. And I wanted to add a a second one to it, which is Water Street by Crystal Wilkinson. Crystal Wilkinson is, she's a black Kentucky author. She's been the poet laureate. Uh, She had a collection of short stories, but her collection of short stories is called Water Street. And uh, it's about one street in a small Kentucky town where most of its black residents live. And so it kind of goes back and forth in time. I love short story collections where there's some link something that holds them all together a little bit um and so uh, i really enjoyed this collection but i wanted to include it because i think a lot of people think that kentucky doesn't have much diversity that's not totally accurate and i think that wilkinson's work can help us learn more about those communities and the role of black people in appalachia and in you know rural places that seem very white so Again, those two books were My Old Kentucky Home, Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song by Emily Bingham, and Water Street by Crystal Wilkinson. Okay, all done. Well, if you can't make it to Derby, and I, I mean, I live here and I don't go to Derby, but you want to feel like you, you know, you know a little bit about Kentucky or you have a little bit of that Kentucky feel, these books, you know, I think can put you in the spirit of, of what Kentucky is about. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about a movie we went to see. We're back. Uh, And Amy, you had teased before the break that we had gone to see a movie. I surprised you when it came to this movie. You absolutely did. You absolutely did. Uh, Somebody in our book club invited us to go to see Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret at the movie theater, which I think came out Friday night. And I said, well, I'll ask Carrie. I'm pretty sure she's going to say no, because you almost always say no, but I'll ask her. And what did you say? I said, yes. You said, sure. You said, sure. And I'm like, you're just trying to make me look bad. Every time I say (laughs) she's probably not going to come. Now I say that I wanted you to come or I wouldn't have asked you, right? You just, you just surprised me. Well, and, and you had good reason to expect that I would not because Saturday I was being social. That's true. So I was being social on Saturday and for me to be social again on Sunday is almost unheard of. Now, in my opinion, going to a movie though is not really that social. So maybe that's partly why you went, because you don't actually talk to anybody. I mean, you talk to them before the movie and after the movie, but you have like almost two hours where you're sitting there watching something and not really. Well, that's true. That's true. But I'm still like out of my house. Yeah. I I am around other humans that don't live with me. So. Well, that is true. But it was a really good movie. It was. I had forgotten so much of that book. Like I remembered all the stuff about periods and I remembered we must, we must, we must increase our bust. I remembered all that, but I had totally forgotten that in the, in the book, her parents were raised in two different religions. And, and when they got married, there was 
issues with the parents and and the fact that they were from different religious backgrounds. And I had completely, like totally forgotten that until the movie made me remember. So it makes me want to go back and read the book again. I read this a couple of years ago to refresh my memory about it because at that point they were just, there was some talk of it being made into a movie and I thought, oh, you know what? That was like one of my favorite books from, I think I read it before middle school. I don't know. You know, like sixth grade, maybe. Mm -hmm. I remember it. Well, I say vividly because I didn't actually remember all the the stuff about religion in it when I went back and read it. And I thought, oh, I thought it was mainly about, you know, going into puberty. And it is about that. But it's also at least half of it is about the um, the main character struggling to figure out what she is, what religion she is. Her father's Jewish. Her mother was brought up Christian. And her parents are bringing her up as sort of nothing and letting her decide when she gets to be an adult. But she feels like she has to decide right now. And so she has this, you know, stress on her. But I will say, I just, I thought it was so well done. Mm -hmm. I thought Rachel McAdams was really great as the mom. It made me think, oh, (laughs) she's such a good mom. I don't know if she's a mom in real life or not. It made me like, oh, damn it. She she did that all right. And I know when I went through similar things with my daughter, I did not do it as well as she just did it on film. Well, you know, come on. (laughs) If I had a director telling me what to do in a book that told me how to behave, I would have been, you know, a much better mom than than what I have actually been. But, you know, that's the beauty of film. It can all be perfect or touching or whatever. But it it was good. It and was funny. You know, there were parts that were definitely funny, but it was definitely like poignant. Didn't you think though that it brought back? It made you feel like all cringy, like oh, you yes. did when you were like eleven and twelve. Yeah, about everything about your body, like being kind of weird and you know yeah. being so self conscious and it was so bad. I mean, middle school that age is just awful. There was this one scene because. Um, they move to New Jersey and the mom goes to her first PTA meeting and she's so excited and she starts volunteering for like every committee that they have. And there were like four or five of us who went to this movie together and all of us went, Oh, oh don't, don't do, do it. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. You're going to regret it. <laughs> and she does. Yes. But I thought it was kind of funny, you know, when we read it as girls, we relate to the young girl. Yeah. And now we relate to the mom. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. That's funny. Highly recommend going to see that one. All right. So let's switch gears a little bit. I want to know what you put on your TBR in the last, you know, day, 20 seconds. (laughs) I just had it as mystery called A Death in Door County by Annalise Ryan. Hmm. And it's number one in the Monster Hunter mystery. And so Door County in Wisconsin is a place that I've been wanting to visit. It's up in the Great Lakes. It's outside of Green Bay. But this book is about a Wisconsin bookstore owner and cryptozoologist who's asked to investigate a series of death that might just prove that there's a fabled lake monster in one of the great lakes annalise this Ryan. is like your second crypto cryptid book yeah, that you, you're into this cryptids, is, yeah. aren't I? a little bit but the, i mean this is kind of a sweet spot it's a bookstore owner and cryptids and door county i don't know it just sounded like a really fun summer read and then i have oh a book called arthur and teddy are coming out This kind of sounds delightful by Ryan Love. And it is about a young man who is, uh, I think, coming to terms with his gay identity. And he finds out that his 79-year-old grandfather is also gay, but has kept it a secret all these years. And so the 79-year-old grandfather and the 21-year-old grandson are kind of working through this coming out process together, which just sounded delightful to me. Yeah, that does sound good. Yeah. So again, that was Arthur and Teddy's. Teddy are coming out by Ryan Love. What about you? All right. So this past week, I was having my students, uh, we've been talking about 
decolonization. And so they had to do research on South Africa, French Indochina, and India. And so in preparation for this, I too was also reviewing all that. And I don't know where I heard about this book, but it, probably in one of the articles I read, but it's called Inglorious Empire, What the British Did to India by Shashi Tharoor. And I just thought, you know, I really didn't know anything about partition. Several years ago, I read The Night Diary by Vera Hiranandani, which is a, it's a fictional account of a family that has to move. And so, so I, I, I don't know, I guess I've sort of made it more of a point. I am teaching world history, but I think it's important to make students aware of things that we weren't made uh, aware of. That is a uh, something I never learned about in any history yeah. class. I know a little bit about it because my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is from a Pakistani family. Mm-hmm. And he he has talked a little bit about how they were kind of lived on the border and because their family was Muslim, they all had to move flee yeah. to Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, when the when the partition went up. Yes. When we did world history, it was almost all European. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I heard about this book and I thought, you know, I I think that whole idea is fascinating. You know, the idea of partition and you know, sort of the empire that was South Asia prior to the British, and then what happened when the British were there, and then what happened after the British left. So I added that to my list. And then also, not sure where I heard about this, but this is a Kwame Alexander book, and it's called The Door of No Return. Have you read that? Is that his most... He has a new one out, but I don't think that's the name. No, this is from 2022, but it is about The Door of No Return. I think that's in Ghana. Oh, you remember right. in Ghana. So yeah. that's the building and and that's where slaves pr- slaves were, were shipped, shipped. right. And um so this book is about a a young boy. I assume his So it's historical. It is historical fiction. Um So it's set during this slave trade, not set now with him going back to see it or something. It well, it says the it's the first book in a trilogy. Oh, okay. But, you know, when, for me, at least, whenever I see The Door of No Return, you know, knowing what that refers to, mm-hmm. it, it made me very interested. And then I also added The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay, which they talked about it on the To Read List mm-hmm. uh, podcast. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that sounds like a good book. So I added it. Mm-hmm. So thanks, Bailey and company. <laughs> so that's it. That's all. That's what I got. T- too many books. Uh, let me just ask, what is your total number of books on your Want to Read list? Hmm. Okay. Let's see. Mine is 632, which is around, I was in the 600s. I want to see. You were like at 1,039. Oh, boy. Yeah, you've got a problem. <laughs> you've got a problem. I add, you know, I really should go in there, though, and maybe delete some that I'm like, yeah, I'm never going to read that. I mean, yeah. because I had all kinds of things all the time. Yeah. Sometimes I go through the list and I'm like, I don't even remember why I put this on the list. And I don't know. I guess I guess maybe periodically you should go through it and go, does this even sound interesting to but me anymore? But it doesn't matter. I mean, it's on Goodreads. I don't have to look at it all the time. Probably not. And honestly, I've started putting a lot of them on Libby because you taught me yeah. how to tag things. So mm-hmm. I have one list that's like audiobooks I want to listen to that I tag. Mm-hmm. And then books I want to read and then I tag. So mm-hmm. then the next time I'm looking for something, it's right there. Because yeah. I didn't used to know how to do that. And your whole world opened it up. Did, when I, seriously. Yeah. So I don't even have all of them on Goodreads. Yeah. A lot of them are on Libby. Yeah. Yeah, I do that too. Sometimes if I can't find anything on Libby and there's nothing that I've tagged, then I'll go to Goodreads and kind of scroll through and see if Libby has any of those. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You know how I have this problem with buying ebook deals? Yes, I'm aware. So I've started going through and if it's a book I can get at the library, then I won't buy it generally really but you're starting to put starting I, to put starting restraints to on yourself restraints wow. but if it's a book that the library doesn't have or maybe they don't have the ebook mm-hmm. then i will okay so that's I'm, I'm putting you know that's good reasonable, for you right? good a little bit of a little bit of guardrails on yourself some self-restraint yes yeah, yeah. very good okay. very good all right well if you get a chance this coming saturday Tune in around 6 o'clock. That's when they, they run it to the Kentucky Derby, the fastest two minutes of sports. And think of us, Carrie and Amy, your favorite book podcasters. 
from the perks of being a book lover. <laughs> and maybe we'll be drinking some bourbon together. Maybe. Or not. Who knows? <laughs> Have a good week, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod and on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org. <laughs>